And this evening we're going to continue our series through the book of 1 John. And tonight we're going to talk about the Christian mark of love. The Christian mark of love. But before we begin, I'd like for us to pray together one more time. Father, I just thank you again for tonight and for this evening to worship you and to think about your word, Lord. And we ask now, by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that the word that the Apostle John wrote under the inspiration of your spirit, God, uh, some uh, 2,000 years ago, Lord, we pray that you would just make it powerful to our hearts and our minds that we might take away from it. Lord, what you'd have us know, believe, trust, and obey, uh, that we, Lord, might fulfill uh, the calling that you've given to us while we await, uh, God, that great, that great hope um, uh, that we have in Christ uh, when we all get to heaven. And so, Lord, just bless tonight and open our minds to receive your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. And um, uh, as we talk about the Christian mark of love, the, uh, a, a parable came to mind that really, I think, summarizes uh, the passage that we're going to talk about tonight. And it's a very famous parable, and of course, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're all familiar with that. A uh, man was beaten, left for dead on the side of the road, and the priest, well, first of all, Jesus is talking about the greatest commands, and he talks about... Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, and someone along the way asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And so he tells this story. And the Levite and the priest walk by, you know, and they're supposed to be these especially religious people. Uh, you know, and we could imagine as they, we could even imagine as they walk by, they say, oh, bless this poor man's heart. Somebody needs to help this fella. And they just keep walking by. Uh, but then the Samaritan comes. And he picks him up, binds up his wounds, takes him to the inn, pays for all his bills. And Jesus said, who's the one, who's the one that acted like a neighbor? And they said, the Samaritan. They didn't like that. Not the Samaritans. But all Jesus has to say is, you go and do likewise. You see, it's easy to love people. As I said this morning, it's easy to love people in theory. But when it actually inconveniences you, when it actually costs you something, that's where the true test of our love comes uh, in. And what we're going to learn this morning, uh, this evening, is that as John has been delineating these tests, we learn this most important test, one of the most important tests, and that is the Christian mark of Love, And so if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's word from 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Verse 11. John writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life, into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love 
abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The word of God. You may be seated. I want to see three truths about love this evening. Number one, love is a sign. Love is the sign of spiritual life. Number two, love is practical self-giving. And number three, love is us in God and God in us. Again, love is the sign of spiritual life. Love is practical self-giving. And love is us in God and God in us. So number one, love is the sign of spiritual life. So, again, uh, we've talked about the context of John, and John is giving these tests to reassure these believers who are unsettled by a group who has defected from the church and unsettling them with false teaching and with their immoral lifestyle. And John is giving them them tests so that they can know who is of God and who is a reliable guide in the faith. And last week we discussed the moral test, and that is, One of the ways that we can distinguish Christians from those who merely profess faith in Christ or false teachers is their moral behavior. And so we talked about how a changed life is not the basis on which we are saved. Uh, The changed life is not the root of our salvation, but it is a necessary fruit of our salvation. And so so John has warned these people. Christians about whom he called who he whom he called antichrist those who have embraced false teaching and sinful lifestyles and have left true Christianity all the while claiming that they are Christians and and Jesus in a, in a context talking about false teachers and false prophets said the same thing he said you'll know them by their fruits and so it is indeed legitimate to examine and if 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 someone is saying certain things about uh, Christianity and life, but if they're uh, about and about God, and if they're but if their life is not lining up with the ethical demands of the gospel and Christ and His apostles, then then they're most likely leading us astray. And then the text last week in chapter three, verse ten, closed with this verse. He said, "By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God." nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so that last phrase there transitions us into our passage this evening where he says, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And he transitions to this, this next uh, test here. And so these two, these two tests are integrally related, of course. 
But for John, he's, he's saying here that someone who does not love the brothers, the brethren, the, who does not have genuine love for other believers in Jesus Christ, that's a test of our true faith in, in Jesus. And so, I mean, it's just really clear. You can't love Christ without loving his bride, without loving his people. You just, you just can't. And if you're a true Christian, I mean, and, and I'm sure you've experienced this and I've experienced this as well. I mean, there's just a connection that you have with other followers of Jesus. So if you go anywhere, you know, like if you go, you know, to a restaurant somewhere, maybe you're vacationing or, you know, and you go get some coffee and you see two people and, and they, they're sitting there drinking coffee and they have their Bibles open. Man, I just want to walk up to them and talk to them and say, hey, what are you reading? What are you studying? Because, you know, you just know there's, we have that connection because we both belong to Christ, to the same family to the same God. And so if we know Christ and if we're saved by Christ, then just by virtue of the fact that the Spirit lives within us and we've been born of God and we belong to Him, we're going to feel this special connection and love for other people who know Christ. And if we don't, John says that's the problem because it's a sign that if you don't have this special affection for the others who follow Christ, then it may be a sign. You know, you even even outside of spiritual terms, we can we can kind of see a little bit what John's talking about. Let's say you have a hobby that you really really love. Maybe you like golf, and you're out and you're out somewhere, and you hear a couple guys talking about golf, and you start inching toward them because you want to join in their conversation. You have something in common. You have something in common and you want to talk about it and it connects you. Well, if you have Christ in common, which is the greatest thing that we could possibly have in common because he's our, he's, our, he's our very life and he changes the whole way we look at the world. If you have Christ in common, then you're going to feel that connection with others. And to not feel that connection is a, is a, is a bad sign, John is saying. And so he goes on and he says there in verse 11, he says, This is the message that we've heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. This is, this is quite striking because he identifies the command to love one another with the message that they've heard at the beginning. That is the gospel message. That is the, the, the gospel and the ethical demands of the gospel are inseparable. They go together. Uh, we could think of it like this. The core truth of the gospel is that through Christ, God is... God has, God has redeemed His people from the penalty of their sin and, is, uh, and, is, and has redeemed them and has purchased them for Himself and, and is applying that work in the lives of His people by the power of the Holy Spirit so that everyone who believes in Him is forgiven of their sin and has the sure guaranteed hope of eternal life. And so, I mean, that's the gospel. It's the, it's the message that we've heard from the beginning, that Christ died to deliver us from our sins according with the scriptures. But of course, built into that gospel message is the ethical, is the ethical demands of that message. And that is, how can we continue living in sin that we say we've been forgiven of? How can we, how can we be indifferent towards sin that we're saying that Christ died to save us from? And, we, and, and now we're indifferent to it. It doesn't make sense. The ethical commands is bound to the gospel itself, to the message itself. And so that is that. Uh, so the conduct of the gospel accords with the message of the gospel. And so just as the truth of the gospel never changes, so the ethical demands of the gospel never changes. 
And so that's why you got to beware when someone comes saying things like, well, you know, they didn't really understand what we know now. And Paul, oh, if, if, oh, if Jesus and Paul were alive today, they'd say it was okay. People say that. The ethical demands of the gospel don't change because the gospel hasn't changed. And it can never change. And it will never change. God, through Christ, is freeing us from the penalty of our sins and from enslavement to our own selves. And we are now free to do what we couldn't do before. And that is love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what the gospel frees us to do. Not to sin. And the ethical commands of the gospel never change because the gospel never changed. So that's what John is saying is we have to cling to that which is from the beginning. That which is from the beginning. That old time religion 2,000 years ago. And then he continues in verse 12 by telling us to reject the negative example of Cain. He says, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because... His own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So he's, he, he holds up this uh, negative example of Cain when he's teaching us to love one another. Because he's saying, don't be like Cain. You remember the story of Cain and Abel. I mean, it, I mean, you just think about it. One generation after the fall. And a man kills his own brother. That's, that's what sin does. It has broken our uh, nature, given us a sin nature. And you remember the story. They both brought sacrifices to God. Abel's, Abel's were, well, uh, were accepted and Cain's weren't. And this led to bitterness and resentment in Cain's heart. And jealousy and envy causing him to murder his own brother. And, you know, sometimes it's kind of, you know, it's a little confusing maybe at first blush. You know, it's not immediately clear why Abel's sacrifice was accepted over and against Cain. But then when you read the New Testament, it actually becomes quite clear. Because right here in verse 12, it says that he, he murdered his brother because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about Cain and how the reason is that Cain did not, did not offer his sacrifice in faith. That is out of a heart of pure love and trust for God. And then John here in this passage too, uh, right about Cain, he says Cain was of the evil one. So the reason why Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted and Abel's was, it didn't have, from what we can tell from the Bible, it didn't have anything to do with the nature of the sacrifice. Just that, that, that Cain's was of the ground and Abel's was of the flock. It, it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with Cain's heart. Cain brought his offering to God, and God saw the offering, but he didn't just see the offering. He saw the heart of the man who was making the offering. And that heart was sick. It was evil. It was unrighteous. How do we know Cain's heart was unrighteous? Even when he made the offering, because he got so jealous when it wasn't accepted that he killed his brother over it. That didn't just begin in him before he made the offering. It was there the whole time. God looked at his heart and saw Cain's heart and saw that it was not righteous. It was a wicked heart. And so that's what, and so that's why he didn't accept it. And so that's what John is teaching us. He says, don't be like Cain. Don't harbor bitterness and resentment and envy and jealousy towards others. And it says here that 
Ain, uh, Cain murdered his brother because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And so it's, the, I, I think there's a, a, a little lesson we can draw from this. And that is that, see, you see, Cain resented Abel because Abel's actions were righteous and his heart was righteous and, 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 and Cain's wasn't. So what we see from that is a principle that is generally true, and that is that, that when, when, someone, when, when someone, I mean, we hate to put it this starkly, but is evil or is unrighteous or loves something that the Bible condemns, then they will not be content. So if you just live a righteous life without ever saying a single thing to a person, there will be people who will hate you for it. Because your righteous life will serve as a contrast to the unrighteous life that you're living. And the fact that you uphold a certain type of standard in your life will, will enrage those who, who disagree with the standards of holiness that you uphold with your life. Cain looked at Eve's righteous life and he saw that it, it, he saw that it served as a contrast to his evilness and it, it made him angry. made him bitter. It made him enraged. And we live in a day today, for example, where, you know, it's not enough for just us to hold our views. But there's the world out there that's trying to, you know, trying to force Christian bakers and Christian florists to not just accept, but to celebrate a lifestyle that the Bible forbids. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Because the simple fact that we have a belief in God and his word that something is wrong infuriates People, because guess what? People don't like being told that their actions are sin. People don't like it. And it infuriates them. But the point is this, and that's why I think John kind of throws in this uh, uh, statement here off to the side a little bit in verse 13 where he says, Do not be surprised, brother, brothers, that the world hates you. You see, Cain hated his own brother Abel and killed him for it. The world will hate us the world will hate us and what john is saying here is that if we live if we really if we really live for christ and if we really follow him we just we just have to we we just have to be willing to accept that it's not you know we don't have to be happy about it we're not happy about it but at the same time that's just the cost of following jesus is having some people just being unwilling to accept us doesn't mean we don't love them doesn't mean we don't care but we continue to love and so uh, John continues here, and he goes on to say uh, that abiding in death, he goes on to say, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so, and so there's this distinction, John says, between the world and between uh, the, the followers of Christ. And one, he says, he, ba- he basically says, lives in death, and the other lives in life. So either you abide in death or you abide in life. Just like last week, you're either of the devil or you're of God. You're, you're, there's no in between. You're either one or the other. And in this case, you either abide in death or you abide in life. And again, this is how he says, this is how we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. And so this kind of love that John is talking about, it's, it's, a, it's supernatural, it's that it's that test. It's that one who it's that one who who doesn't have who who's not going to be like Cain and look at the brother and resent. You see, if we know Christ and if we love Christ, 
We're not going to resent other people's righteousness. We're going to love it. If I know Christ and if I know God and if I trust God and if I trust that he knows what's good for me and what's right for me, then I'm not going to resent other people who follow Christ. I'm going to love them because they're going to embrace the same ideals I do. But a sign that you're of the death, that you don't know Christ, is if you look with resentment and bitterness and envy on those who know and love Christ and follow him because because their righteousness is condemning your unrighteousness and you don't like it. That's, that's the sign, that's a mark. That's a mark that you're abiding in death. But the sign of life is that we have genuine affection and care for others who are captivated by the same gospel message that we are. And then finally, in that final verse there, John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John is probably referring to Jesus' statement that says, uh, if you, if you uh, are angry with your brother in your heart, you are guilty of murder. And so we can't be so quick to dismiss this by saying, well, you know, we're not murderers. You know, that's a lot of, well, it's kind of extreme. You know, I'm not a murderer. You know, so this doesn't really apply to me. But we can't write him off so quickly. Do, are you, do you have any bitterness in your heart towards somebody? Do you have any unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody? You have somebody you just kind of resent a little bit. Somebody you'd be you'd be happy, you know, if you ne- if you never saw them again. What he's saying here is that if we hold these feelings of bitterness and resentment and anger or envy or jealousy in our heart, then it's no different. It's no different than being a murderer. It's the heart. It's the spirit of the murderer. You know, Cain, Cain was a murderer before he ever actually killed his brother. And that's why God came and warned him. And he said, if you, not do, well, will you, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so number one here is that love is the sign of spiritual life. Love is the sign of spiritual life. And number two, love is practical self-giving. Love is practical self-giving. In verses 16 through 18, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk. But indeed, in truth. So, the question that we have to ask ourselves, one of the most important questions we have to ask ourselves, is what what is love, and what does it look like? Because if a mark of of mark of true Christianity is genuine love for other believers, then what does that love look like, and how will we know when we see it? And this is what John tells us. Uh, one of Jesus's quintessential command was the command. To love one another. Jesus said the heart of the law and the prophets was love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus said this to his disciples, John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So, Again, this, com- this is, this is Jesus' command. 
on the night that he was betrayed, telling his disciples, here's what you got to do. It sounds so simplistic, but it's so powerful. He says, here's, here's my plan. You love one another as I have loved you. This is the sign of being a friend of Christ, he says. You are my friends if you do what I command you. A friend of Christ, one whom Christ knows, one whom Christ recognizes, one whom Christ will acknowledge when we stand before him on the last day. To be a friend of Christ. And, and Jesus says, you are my friend if you do what I've commanded you. And what's my command? To love one another. How? As I have loved you. Just think for a moment how Jesus has loved you. How has Jesus loved you? Do you love other people like that? Do you show people, do you thank God in the morning for the grace that he has showed you for your shortcomings and failures? And then do you extend the same grace to others? Or are you a lot easier, are are you thankful for Jesus being easy on you, but you're not going to give them a break over here? Love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love? He gave himself. He did not count his life as precious to himself. But he gave literally the totality of himself for our temporal and eternal good and for the glory of God. And what John and Jesus are saying is that if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to be like Christ, then we're going to have to love like that. uh, uh, Paul describes this love in Philippians chapter 2. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does the mind of Christ, the love of Christ, compel us to do? It compels us to not just be concerned about our own interests, but also care about the interests of others. And so Christ and the Apostle Paul is calling ourselves to think, am I primarily just absorbed with myself or do I care about the interests of others? Am I loving others? Do I, are there, am, I, am I the priest and the Levite that sees the person on the side of the road and I just keep on walking because I'm busy, because I got things to do? And things to take care of. Do I really love people? And, 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 and that's what John is getting at here. He says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed uh, and truth. James, in James chapter 2, puts it this way. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
So James and John and Jesus, go figure, all saying the same thing. And that is that the faith in Jesus Christ is going to cause us to, to, to take pains to love one another, even at personal cost, even at personal inconvenience. Why? Because that's how Jesus loved us. And when you've been touched by the love of Christ, it changes you. It makes a difference in your life. So we're no longer just concerned about ourselves, but we received a heart of love for others, a heart that will be manifested in tangible acts of self-giving for the good of others. Right? Again, it's, so, it's easy to love people in theory, but when the rubber meets the road, in the rubber meets the road, how are we helping people? How are we going out of our way and inconveniencing ourselves to show the love of Christ to others? Does what we do with our time, our talents, our energy, our resources really tell the world that something is different about us? Could a lost person look at my bank statement and know that I follow Jesus Christ? What about you? That's convicting. (laughs) Does the way I live my life actually show, hey... Something's different about him because he actually will inconvenience himself to help somebody else. He'll actually go the extra mile. That's what that's the power of Christ. And so what I think this means is that we need to think as believers and followers of Christ how we can be proactive and not just reactive in helping others for the glory of God and you know, and I've been thinking about this because, and it comes more naturally to some than others. But we just, you know, pray, Lord, give me eyes to help me see the needs that are around me so that I can go to those needs and meet those needs, not having to be asked. And think about it, that's where the power of Christianity is. You know, if someone, if someone asks you, it's, you know, it's, you know, you, you kind of feel reluctant, and then, and then it, doesn't, it, just, it doesn't show the power of Christ. But if you see a need, and you, you go out of your way to make plans and do work and say, I'm just going to meet that need, and you just meet that need totally unexpected by that person, that per- then that person sees, wow, something's different. And so we need to be proactive and not just reactive in saying, God... Help us to see, help me this week to see what, what is the need that I can meet and just meet it for Christ and for his glory and for his sake and see what God does. But, you know, Jesus, Jesus didn't wait, wait around for us to beg him to come down to save us. We wouldn't have. Jesus took the initiative. He saw us wallowing in our sin, destined for hell, and he came down to meet that need. And most, of the, and most of the people don't even want to have anything to do with him. But guess what? He still came. He still came. Because that's what love, that's what love does. That's what love does. It gives of yourself for the temporal and eternal good of others. And that's what the power of Christ is <coughs> truly put on display. As John told this church 2,000 years ago, he's telling us today, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, in truth. So number one, love is a sign of spiritual life. Number two, love is practical self-giving. And number three, love is us and God and God in us. Love is us and God and God in us. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, 
God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us. By the Spirit whom He has given to us. So, um, so I was reading this passage, and I thought I knew what it meant, and then I realized I didn't. Uh, and uh, it's a little uh, enigmatic, and that's because the, in the original language, it's kind of ambiguous. It's not, there's different ways that it could even be translated. And so I think probably the most faithful translation of this passage is actually found in the NASB, and I actually put it there because I, I want us to, to read that. So let's look at that passage, 1 John three eighteen from the NASB. It says, Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this we are of the truth and will assure, which that word can mean persuade or convince, our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And so... What does this mean? I think it means this. This word, when he, this word translated reassure or assure in, in several translations, the vast majority of the time that it's used in the Bible, it actually means to persuade or to convince. And so we could read it, we could read it in that way. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will persuade or convince our heart before him In whatever our heart condemns us. That's a little different from other translations. We'll persuade and convince our heart in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So here's what, here's what, in that case, here's what this passage would mean. In whatever our heart condemns us means that there would be circumstances in which our heart would condemn us. That is, it would mean that there would be times when an act of love I know is the right thing to do and my heart doesn't want to do it. You ever been there? And in that case, my heart would condemn. It would condemn me because there's an act of love that needs to take place that I know is right to do. But my heart at that time, moment is hardened. It doesn't want to do it. And so in that case, then to persuade our hearts would mean that as a Christian, I'm, by, by dwelling on the truth about God, I would persuade my heart to do what I know is the right thing to do. That's the Christian life, folks. Because we have a sin nature, there will all the times in every area of life, there will be things that in your heart you say, I know that's the right thing to do, but I really don't want to do it. And what do you have to do at that moment? You have to convince your heart about to do the right thing that you know is need to do. Your heart is not a reliable God. Don't believe the lie to follow your heart. It's a lie. You convince your heart. You persuade your heart to do what you know is right to do. And then the the two then that would make verse twenty mean that there are two reasons that by which we can use to persuade our hearts to do what we know is right. Reason number one is that God is greater than our heart, and that could mean two different. It could mean two different things, maybe more. But it could mean this. It could mean it could mean that God is greater than our heart in the sense that God is able to overcome the sinful stubbornness of our hearts. That is, I might not want to do something, but if I lean on God, he'll help me do what I know is right to do because he's greater than my heart. 
Another thing that could mean is it could mean this. It could mean God is greater than my heart in the sense that God, God's a lot bigger than my heart. And I'm going to have to stand before him one day. And so I should care a lot more about what God says than what my heart says. God is greater than my heart. So we can persuade and convince our hearts to know what is right to do by remembering that one, God is greater than our heart. And two, that God knows all things. That God knows all things. That he sees. That he knows. You see, no one else may ever know or ever even care that we pass by like the priest and the Levite, that we pass by. No one will ever know that we pass by, but God knows. And we felt that twinge. We felt that twinge in our heart. I need to stop, and I need to help this person. And we don't. God knows. And, it, and what John is saying is we need to persuade our heart, convince our heart to do what we know is right to do. And he says that... At verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. And again, we could say convince our heart before him. And so that's how you know. That's one of the ways that you know that you're of the truth. Not that you never, not that you never sin, but that you feel that impulse in your heart to do what is right. And you, you rely on God and lean on God to persuade your fallen heart. To, that, that is, if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to have that internal battle. To do what you know is right to do. How many, in other words, we don't, we, can't, we don't trust our heart over and above God. How many times do we excuse ourselves from doing what we know is right to do just because we don't feel like it? But by God's grace and God's strength, God is greater than our fleeting and often sinful feelings of our heart. He is greater. And so, even though, yes... You know, when the disciples, when the, I feel like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane all the time, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But we can't use that as an excuse. We can rely on God and God can give us the strength to convince our hearts to do what is right to do. And finally, um, he goes on to say this. He says, verse 23, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. John, he, he goes on and says, if our, if our heart does not condemn us, verse 21, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And so, if we, out of faith and love and fear of the Lord, recognize the stubborn tendency of our own hearts and we convince our hearts to do what we know is right to do, and, and, and our hearts then do not condemn us, then John says we have confidence before God. There is nothing like having a clean conscience before God. And there is nothing more soul-destroying than having something in your life that is eating away at your conscience. That you, that, you, that, you, that you leave unaddressed and it just puts up this wall between you and God. But if we are walking 
in Christ and doing what we know God is leading us to do in, in helping others in tangible and loving others in tangible acts of good. We can, our heart does not condemn us and we can have confidence before God. And when we have confidence before God, we can pray in faith that we're walking in communion with Him. We're walking in fellowship with Him and that He will indeed hear our prayers because God hears the prayers of His saints who have clean hands and a pure heart before Him. He might not always answer them exactly like we want Him to or exactly like He's expecting to, but you can be rest assured that God is hearing and God is answering and God will answer your prayers in, in the best way possible. And you can have confidence that that is, will happen when you're walking with clean hands and a pure heart before God. But you will be amazed at how many people think they can live in sin and that God will still answer their prayers. It's not going to happen. We can't walk in known sin and expect God to bless our disobedience. But if we have confidence before God, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And we add, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. And then finally he says, whoever keeps His commandments abide in God and God is in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given to us. You see, He comes back full circle here. He talks about abiding in death versus abiding in God, and this is how we know that we abide in God. If we believe in the name of his Son and love one another. And all this, John says, is ultimately, this is how we know that God abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given to us. That means all of this that we've been talking about, all this love that we've been talking about, is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. You know, I don't, nat- I don't naturally <laughs> want to go out of my way to inconvenience myself to love others. But guess what? God will do that in you and in me. Why? Because His Spirit's in you. He'll do it. He'll work it. And He'll get the glory for it. And that's how we know. That's how we know that we abide in Him and Him in us because of the Spirit. The spirit that lives in us. So, love is a sign of spiritual life. Love is practical self-giving. And love is God in, is us in God and God in us. And so, church, let us not love in word and talk, but let us love in deed and in truth. Let us obey the spirit when he leads and guides us. And let me tell you, when we do, when we do that, God will show up. When we do that, people will, people will notice And it'll make an eternal difference in our lives and the lives of others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for...